Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. We're so excited to have Michael Dimmick here, president of Pew Research Center. Thanks so much. I ambushed you, as promised, after our Milk and Global Institute panel. Oh, thanks for having me. So, um, well, we talked a little bit on the panel about the future of polling. That's obviously something we talk a lot about on the show. Um, what are your views? I mean, you sounded pretty optimistic. Tell us a little about that. Do you worry that the industry is getting, it's just getting harder to poll? It's get, there's too much polling. How do you sort through that? Right. Um, I'd, I'd like to be optimistic, but it's definitely a challenge for all of us. I mean, the, the methodologies that are available to us now as pollsters are so broad. Many of them are less well-tested in terms of their reliability and consistency over time and across different issue areas. And I think a ton of work still needs to be done to better understand those properties. Um, so, you know, at the Pew Research Center, we're trying to do a little bit of both. We're still trying to understand how to improve and maintain quality in traditional methodologies, which I think still have a long glide path to them before they really fall apart uh, fundamentally. But there are costs that start to shape the long-term, you know, viability of those approaches for the volume of work we'd like to do. And so exploring different approaches that might be useful for certain kinds of purposes and really test uh, their reliability over time and how consistent they can be in giving us data, you know, that can be nerve-wracking and it sort of splits your attention across more areas, but it's kind of exciting at the same time. Do you think, I mean, in order to study the methodological questions that you guys do, for example, the likely voter model that we talked about with Scott Keeter a few months ago or your new online panel comparison, which I'll ask you about in a minute, that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of funding. You don't have the client pressure of, I want the answer to X, Y, and Z question. It's an experiment. Is this the kind of work that you think more outlets should be doing, or do you see this more as a service that Pew is doing for the greater good? (laughs) I would love to see more outlets doing it, and there are other folks doing this kind of comparative work, uh, whether they're in industry, you know, at some of the major uh, companies that are doing polling and for their own business needs need to grapple with these questions, or in the academic world where there's a lot of good work doing. I think the Pew Research Center is in a somewhat unique position. We don't have clients. We don't have to have immediate answers, and uh, part of our mission is to try to better understand data quality, not just to produce results uh, on issues. 
issues or topics or changes. Um, so we take seriously that part of the mission, and it gives us some breathing room to do sort of what I think of as basic science work. You know, it's it's really trying to understand the broader DNA of, of the data collection process and how things are changing. Uh, you don't know exactly what the applications are going to be. You're really just exploring at this stage. So yesterday you released this report. I haven't, I'll admit, I haven't read the whole thing yet because here, we're here out in L.A., but it, comparing, I guess, seven or nine different online uh, panels, not naming them. So your favorite may be in there, and it may be at the top, maybe at the bottom, only the folks at Pew know. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found and why you took that on and why hold back which panels at the top and which ones at the bottom? Well, why did we do this? Look, non-probability surveys are a huge share of the field right now and the fastest growing share of the field right now. And they are being used to make serious decisions. Um, I mean, we tend to focus on political polling, campaign polling. But the reality is so much polling is business polling. And businesses are making multi-million dollar investments and bets based on surveys that they're doing through these methodologies. You have to take that seriously and understand its properties. So we wanted to try to explore the area. In some ways, I think the non-probability space is sort of like the Wild West, which is not a bad thing. It's not like they're criminals or, you know, you know train robbers or something. It's just that it's a, it's a new space, and there are a lot of people doing it in a lot of different ways. And we wanted to try to understand and highlight the breadth of this field right now. I think there's a tendency to say, oh, there are probability polls. They all look like this. There are non-probability polls. They all look like that. It's not that way. You know, the non-probability polls have so many different approaches and methodologies. And what we found in the study was that they really have varying sort of levels of um, accuracy, let's just say, when it comes to really matching benchmarks that you can establish from really, really serious survey work like government baselines on health or behaviors and so forth and so on. Um, I think the optimistic side of that is there clearly are folks in the field who are advancing those methodologies and are doing a pretty good job of taking imperfect data as an input and kind of modeling it and applying techniques that get them pretty pretty accurate outputs. Um, others maybe less well, but it may just depend on what dimensions you're trying to measure. So if you are a consumer of the various research panels um, and you don't know which one's at the top of your list and which one's at the bottom, how do you then adjust? What can you do after the fact or how can you be a good consumer of research panels other than replicating, other than by replicating your study? <laughs> well, look, we didn't want to go into ranking here's the best non-prob poll, here's the worst by name, partly because we were working with these groups to help us uh, engage in understanding the breadth of the field, and we didn't really want to come out of it saying you're going to get ranked, you know, as a part of this endeavor. This is sort of a scientific exploration of the breadth of the field, not a ranking exercise. Um, uh, but I think, again, that's I, – I think as a consumer, it's just an opportunity to sort of recognize um, that this is not a sort of um, – can I say this? This is not a settled field of study, and I think it's going to take another – 
10 years or more for us to really figure out the sort of basic principles that are going to apply uh, in terms of how you pull people into a sample, how you model them as part of the process, how you engage with them. Do you impanel them and talk to them repeatedly? Do you just try to pull them in and talk to them once and then let them go free again. Um, those are all things that are being worked out right now. And we wanted to just explore the breadth of the field at this moment rather than ranking who the winners and losers are at this early stage of the game. I thought one of the important findings was how badly they did relative to the other metrics on reaching African-Americans and Latinos, then it wasn't just how many you got, but how representative the respondents you had were of those populations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway from this, which is that because most of the non-probability surveys are really based on modeling to aggregate public proportions, you know, whether it's traditional demographic weighting that all of us would use or weighting and, and sort of pulling and pushing that, um, that sample to other metrics, whether they're political markers or other values or views or behaviors, those are designed to achieve, to shape that sample towards a national aggregate. But where they really still seem weak is in your ability to look at subgroups within it. Because the random, not random, that's exactly the wrong word, the kind of mix of minorities or young people or older people or whatever subgroup that you're interested in, in any given pull from those non-probability or uh, sources is not necessarily representative of, of that group in society. And until these modeling exercises get more sophisticated at both squeezing to the total population, but also modeling to those subpopulations, I think you need to be really cautious about the conclusions you draw about subgroups from these panels. So it isn't just that, which I've heard other folks argue, that taking a poll is a political act. It's it's itself a sign of political engagement. So it's okay if it seems hard, you know, that some people are harder to reach because those people are less likely to vote. Is that something, is that a lens through which we should view the results of your online work? Or is your online work more looking at the total population, not just voters? Or are you thinking about civic engagement differently? It's a it's a good question. I mean, polling as a field has tended to always focus on the general public, you know, or registered voters, or some universal base where we wanted every single individual to have an equal probability of being, you know, involved. So we would look at any distortion from that as a as a bias. But you can reconceptualize what the public is that you want to study. You can say, no, we want to study engaged voters, or we want to study people who care about issue X, whether it's a foreign policy issue or a domestic issue or uh, an economic issue. Um, And then you might rethink your whole sampling approach. One of the things we have found, but anybody who does probability and phone polling knows this for decades, is we do tend to get too many engaged people, and we typically are waiting back against that to try to get back to that general public. But it could be that as we come up with more methods of surveying, we actually find that some of them are really good at measuring engaged publics rather than general publics, and we take that as a virtue rather than a bias and use it for that purpose. So shifting gears to just the big trends you're seeing this election cycle, and I know you're not really doing horse race stuff anymore, but you're still looking at trends in polarization, for example, in terms of your recent study. When we had Frank Newport on from Gallup a few months ago, he said one of the big trends was just how 
terrible people feel about government. They just feel government is so horrible and dysfunctional, and that's just a very high hurdle for us all to overcome. Do you see that as the same trend, or do you see something else as the big, looming political public opinion crisis this cycle <laughs> what's the crisis of this cycle right. <laughs> uh well you know i would agree with frank on that and i think both the pew research center and gallup have done a lot of work on institutional distrust it goes beyond government it, it right. applies to a lot of institutions these days who are not really seen as the sources of credibility that they were in past generations and the, and the generational signal on that is a strong one um I do think that that's shaping this election cycle, and you're seeing how candidates are succeeding by, you know, proposing a kind of anti-government uh, type of sentiment, anti-political parties. Uh, you've never seen both parties as viewed as neg negatively as you are right now. Um, I think, you know, the, there's another broad trend on top of the polarization and the distrust trends, let's just say, which is this sense of disempowerment. You know, I mean, look, there's always been a certain amount of that. People see politics as rigged. They see the economy as rigged. But the, the visceralness of that sentiment among people these days is, is hard to overestimate. You know, that there are a lot of people in this country who really feel that, Everything is a game, and only certain people can ante in and actually be able to win in that game. And that creates an environment that breeds that distrust. They don't see the political process as a credible one. They don't see the economic process, Wall Street, et cetera, banking, as a credible one. They feel locked out from all of those decisions. And that is really mobilizing people in very powerful ways, obviously, as we're seeing in the election so far. I think if there's one one of the reasons, maybe all of us, I don't think anybody in the polling world or elsewhere predicted that Trump would be where he is today, uh, is that we focus so much on the partisan divisions and we thought, oh, at the end of the day, Republicans are consolidated around somebody who they think will beat Hillary. We sort of missed this underlying stress, uh, which is both the level of dissatisfaction within particularly the Republican Party with its own party and its own leadership, um, but also the extent to which so many people in both parties really feel locked out right now, and that that's overriding those, let's say, partisan strategic considerations. Yeah, I mean, I, we talked a little bit about this on the panel, because people ask this question all the time. I don't really think it's so much that we missed the polls. People were trying to tell us. I, I think we just didn't want to hear it. There's an element of, you know, denial, you know, myself included and lots of other folks, people hoping and believing that that Trump would not continue to surge as much as he has. Yeah, we always react to our most recent experiences. We're, we're human beings, after all. And the reality of the last major election cycles in 2012 and even 2008 was a series of candidates who tapped into, let's call it a populist sentiment, a sense of disenchantment with the process, and they would rise and they would fall. And then another one would rise and fall. So it was Michelle Bachman, it was Herman Cain, it was, you know, you can name all of these right. folks over the last two cycles. So I think everybody went into the early polling this year and said, yeah, some of that is an expression of frustration. It's not an expression of actual voting intent. And that as people really get closer to an election, that they're going to behave more strategically or they're going to behave more, they're going to think more about the policy structure rather than that emotional, you know, kind of reaction. 
I, you know, I think we missed a little bit of the intensification of that over time. But again, that's not a sea change. That's not something that triggered in 2016. That's been a slow build, that sense of frustration. Um, and I think what you found this cycle was, uh, you know, a candidate who really stuck with that message very consistently and was able to really take it, you know, to really um, embody that sentiment in a way that we never we didn't see the other candidates do in past cycles. So tell us a little bit more about your background. Tell us about your research background, how you came to Pew. Why do public opinion research? Uh, Well, I I got a Ph.D. in political science at UC San Diego. I was a college professor for four years, which was a lot of fun. But it works on a relatively slow cycle of production and engagement. And uh, when I had the opportunity to talk with Andy Kohut about possibly working at the Pew Research Center, I jumped at it and never looked back. Uh, I've been at Pew for 16 years uh, and have been actively involved in the U.S. political polling all along. Um, I, I do just really care about the public's voice in a democracy. I really do believe that we need good quality polling to go beyond the kind of immediate popularity of particular individuals and really understand why people are making the decisions that they're making and make sure that the political leaders don't own the voice of the public, that there's an independent voice of the public in the democratic process. And I think polls are, they serve that purpose. And increasingly, our research agenda is not U.S.-based. We do about half of our work overseas now, and I feel equally passionately about that as you get into the rest of the world, that the reality of, of technology's impact uh, in the world is that the voice of the public is becoming more important everywhere. Um, and you can try to suppress that and ignore it. Uh, you can say that it's uninformed and shouldn't be paid attention to, uh, but it's a reality, and getting high-quality real measures of what public strains, stresses, anxieties, concerns, priorities are across the world is really critical. So tell me a little bit more about that. Is it hard to get data that you can really compare from a country to country where some places I'm assuming you have to do in person and right. as opposed to telephone versus online versus cells only? I mean, how, how do you guys figure all that? That seems like an enormous challenge. It is. I mean, the amount of work we put into domestic survey methodology is sort of, you know, only a small share of what we put into really international comparative data collection methodology. And there are new, the challenges just become multidimensional very, very quickly. Um, the majority of our global survey work is face-to-face, um, partly because we want to be able to really reach a good cross-sample of publics where technolo- technology access isn't universal. Uh, also because the cost structure allow it, and in some ways it really gives you better data. You really know who you're talking to. You're really able to engage with people about questions and issues that may be very complex in a more direct way. Um, but it does, when you get to the cross-national comparative work, it, it, it's certainly a big challenge. And we think very seriously, I think the the... The, the real challenge of that is really in designing questions that are going to not be distorted too much by those mode differences. You know, you can design questions that work really well on the phone and will fall apart face-to-face and vice versa, and you have to be much more thoughtful in the design process to really create metrics that are going to work consistently in different modes. 
Um, so we have a lot of listeners who are in college or in graduate school or early in their careers. Do you have advice for folks who are thinking about going into polling and deciding whether or not to enter this industry professionally? Yeah. Um, don't be afraid of numbers. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to really know how to think about statistical properties. And I know that sounds boring, but you got to have a certain passion for thinking about how numbers, how to make sense out of numbers. I mean, polling is at the end of the day a process of aggregating a lot of individual views into something more collective. And we could do that all with open-ended interviews and just let people express it in their own words. But at the end of the day, then we've got millions of words and no way to summarize it. So we do need numbers and we do need to think about it. And as the field gets more complicated, the amount of thought that has to go into how to take the raw data and really treat it as something meaningful becomes even more complicated. And then when you add in all of the opportunities of let's say big data, you know, the other kinds of data sources that can be appended to surveys or can inform surveys or that can work in parallel with surveys. The opportunity is huge, but you have to have a certain desire to lean in to the numbers of it a little bit. But I would temper that with you also have to sort of care about people. Like you kind of have to want to get inside people's heads. You know, that's what polling is all about is getting beyond what they do to understand why they do it and really letting people designing questions, designing ways of getting into people's heads in ways that allow their true feelings, their true concerns to, to come out and not be distorted by the data collection process. And that's, that's, that's a different engagement. That's not a statistical engagement. That's really a sort of psychological engagement. Right. No, that's good advice. I mean, we've had, when we ask other people this question, some of them say, you have to be, you have to be strong at statistics. And other folks say, you don't have to be strong at statistics. I mean, not everybody in polling has to be a statistician, but you definitely have to enjoy and can't be scared of the numbers. And there are also, there's also a lot of room for folks who are very strong writers, which is not always the same as folks who are strong statisticians. I I would, that's a really important point. I mean, in our organization, many of the, the, the leaders of our polling groups came out of a writing background, and I think that's an important point. And again, I think part of that reflects their interest in that psychological side of it and really understanding how to take some, what somebody's saying and, and, and interpret it um, carefully and understand kind of the intention behind the question and the intention behind what somebody might have meant when they answered it one way or another. And... Um, you know, having that ability to interpret is is really important, um, and a lot of that does come from being a good writer, a good thinker. Um, and I think, you know, if there's a danger in polling as a profession, it's to overinterpret numbers, whether it's a two-point change in somebody's favorability ratings, or whether it's a question where you force somebody to choose between option one and option two, and wanting to say, oh, well, clearly a majority of the public says one. Well, you don't want to overinterpret those numbers. You want to be sensitive to the the challenge of pulling an idea out of somebody's head and turning it into a number is a really difficult one. And, and I think the people who succeed take that challenge seriously and cautiously. 
So last question. Tell us how people can find you, follow you on Twitter. What else is coming up down the pike that people should be taking a look at? Right. Well, we have a lot of work queued up for this year, both in the U.S. and abroad, and all of it comes out at pewresearch.org. Um, and you can follow us with a weekly newsletter or other particular channels on topics that you're more interested in, our international work, our domestic work, our social work on uh, identity and race, and, and uh, you can follow our work on religion and other topics that we spend a lot of uh, time and energy really trying to cover in ways that other organizations don't. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter at Michael Dimmick. Um, uh, I can't say I'm the most active tweeter yet, but, uh, but we're working on that. Uh, I think the best source really is, uh, is our website, and uh, we try to make it easy for you to get that kind of weekly tap in because we are producing somewhere, you know, in the neighborhood of, uh, uh, you know, three to five reports a week and a whole lot of blog items and a whole lot of other analyses. So um, you, you may not want the full fire hose. You can just sort of check in on what interests you. Well, we want the full fire hose. We cite <laughs> you guys every week. So thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate you joining us. Sure. Thank you.